We're in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12. Verse 12 is a beatitude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Verse 12 is a beatitude. What a blessed passage. It follows the beatitude formula. It says, blessed is the man. And the word for man, of course, is a word that can be without the article, which it does not have in the original, can mean person. Man, woman, boy, girl. In other words, blessed is the person, especially blessed is the person who does what? Who remains steadfast under trial. When the trials come that are mentioned there in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is all kinds of trials that come our way. The circumstances of life, it may be a health issue, it may be a relationship issue, it may be a financial issue, it could be just any number of things that come to us. These are trials in the sense of testing. And the result of that testing is a pass-fail grade. And passing is this, remaining faithful and steadfast to the Lord, strengthening you, undergoing the trials. In order to overcome, you must first undergo. And that's exactly the way the Christian life is to be lived. And there is a blessing pronounced here upon those who remain steadfast. It's the same word that's used in the earlier passage. It means to hold up under, to stay under for a long time. And here the tense of the verb is such that it means progressive, continuous action in present time. In other words, this is, this is the way we live our, live our lives as Christians, undergoing various testings. Now, the promise is the crown of life. The crown, of course, in the uh, ancient Greek world was that wreath that they would put on the head of those that won the athletic contest, the race or the the, uh, contest, the wrestling match or whatever. And really, the background for this is probably more like the concept of crowning in the Old Testament. Crowning in the Old Testament had to do with a bestowal. It was more of a metaphor. It wasn't just the physical crown that was placed upon the head, but it was the the honor and the dignity and the title and the rank and the, the blessing and the, the uh, uh, bounty that went with that. And that's what eternal life is pictured. 
This is a metaphor for eternal life. In the book of Revelation, in the final analysis, it said that those who remain faithful, even unto death, will receive the crown of life. This is nothing other than that everlasting life that is a bestowal by the King of Kings upon those who remain faithful to Him. Trials of the sort about which I have just spoken can be sent by the Lord. The Lord does indeed test His saints. Abraham was tested. And that's kind of the sense in which it's used here. But there arises an improper inference from this testing. And the improper inference is that these trials are sent by the Lord upon us and so it's not our fault when we fail because God has pressed upon us the trial and we can easily see that the logic and the sequence of events we reason in our mind is the Lord has tempted us. He has moved us and pushed us and put us in a particular predicament and paved the way and moved us toward sinful acts. And so the wrong inference is that the Lord causes us by these afflictions and trials to sin. And the next couple of verses is a correction to that false inference. It is also a theodicy. That means it's a defense of God and God's character. It's easy to shift the blame to God. That's what Adam did in the first sin. When Adam was found to have sinned, his statement before the Lord is, it's the woman. <laughs> a little blame shifting, but it was worse than that. It's the woman that thou gavest me. In other words, it goes to the Lord. And Adam blamed God ultimately for his transgression. And what a grave and pernicious error that is. And so James corrects it here in a very packed, terse, bold, and, and forward statement about that notion. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Now, by the way, the word for trial and the word for temptation is the same word. So that's why it's easy to get a confusion there. You have two different uses, two different definitions, really, of the exact same word. And that's often how our confusions come. If we understand trials in one way, but then we understand the same word, temptations, in another. And it's the context here, the two clear context of the two uses of these two words, this same word that gives us our understanding. And it's pretty clear when James says, do not say that your trials and your temptations move you to sin. He says, do not say, I am tempted by God. There's two reasons. 
God cannot be tempted, and God does not tempt. Literally, the word is the word for temptation with the preformative, the prefix, ah, alpha, a, in front of it. In other words, God is not temptable. God is untemptable. And you'll see as we sort of flesh out in a moment what involved in the temptations of the human heart, you can see how God is not temptable. There is no proclivity to evil in God. There is no plowed field waiting to be planted with the seeds of temptation in God. God is infinite spirit and absolute, holy and righteous and just in all of His ways. Purity. God cannot even be tempted because there's nothing in Him to appeal to by a temptation. The prophet Habakkuk said it best. He says, Thou art of two pure eyes to behold iniquity. The Lord, in His very character, in His very person, in His perfection, cannot be tempted. And it also says that He tempts no man. He tempts no one. And we need to see then what the temptation is because at this point, we need a definition. And we get it in verse 14. The very next verse gives us our definition of temptation. Here's what it is. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We just saw in the Beatitude that undergoing the trials that come our way leads us successfully to the bestowal of a crown of life. And now we are introduced to a complex of processes which drive us to death. What's being talked about here? I like the definition. It's very helpful, but it must be examined closely. Let's just look at it word for word, if you don't mind, for a moment. Can I teach for just a little bit? And let's, let's get verse 14 down and let's just look at it. But, contrast. Here's what temptation is. Here's the temptation that God cannot be tempted Here's the temptation that God does not give to man. Here's what temptation is. Each person. Temptation is to you personal. It is to me personal. Things tempt me that don't tempt you. It's the way you're wired. It's the way your psyche is constructed. It's what is in you that provides the field the theater, the arena for temptation. It's what is in you. We saw that in the temptations of Jesus. He had just been called to His ministry and anointed by the Holy Spirit, and He was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there He was met, 40, at 40 days of privation, He was met with Satan to tempt. And Satan tempted it at His particular need. He was starving, hungry. 40 days without bread, and so Satan tempts him to turn the stones into bread. He had just received the 
enormous anointing that came at his baptism by the Holy Spirit to accomplish a mission. And that mission was to be the Savior of the world. And he had upon him the burden of universal salvation. Bringing and possessing to himself a righteous kingdom. And all the promises and the prophecies of the messianic expectation was upon his shoulders. And so Satan offered him something. I'll give you this, all this. I'll give you the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. See, it was, it was personal. What was Jesus' need? What was his pent-up desires and expectations? That's where Satan tempted him. And that's where our temptations lie. They are, they're peculiar to us. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's your, it's the idios, it's the word for peculiar, particular. It is your particular, peculiar, personal desires. The word uh, lust is in, in some of the text, and it's the, really the word for strong desire. It's really neutral. You can have a strong desire for that which is good. You can have a strong desire for that which is evil, but... It's that desire that is within you. Your own particular desire is the place where the temptation occurs. We learn that our nature is fallen. We learn that all facets of our soul has been affected by the fall. That's what we mean when we talk about total Depravity. We don't mean we're as absolutely bad as we can be. That's utter depravity. But total depravity means that the total soul, the whole soul has been affected. That thinking capacity has been affected and there's a darkening of our reasoning. There's an apt to be tempted. There's an apt to be deceived. There's an apt to be misled. There's an apt to misunderstand. And so we don't think clearly. We don't think God's thoughts after Him. Our emotions have been affected by the fall. We're now in a state where we have vile affections. We have unclean thoughts and impure motives. That which we find pleasure in is not necessarily that which we should find pleasure in. And we find pleasure in excesses. And so there is a fertile ground for temptation. We're already predisposed to sin. We're bent toward it. There's a twist in our soul that moves us there. And woefully so, not only are the mental faculties, our thinking affected, but our emotions affected, but our volitional capacity has been warped. 
We don't even choose correctly. We make wrong choices. And John, in his letter, tells us that it's sort of summed up by the lust of the eye. The lust, the strong desires of the eye. The strong desires of our physical flesh. And it's the pride of life. We got a minute. Let me take a minute just to kind of briefly look at the the first temptation back in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Here's Satan and through the serpent dealing with the woman. 3.6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She saw it was good for food, the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was to be desired, the lust of the eye. And when she saw that it would make one like God, the pride of life, to stand in the place of God, to be like God. If you're like God, you can work alongside God. He's really no longer God. And if you're really like God, you don't need God. And that's the temptation, is to put ourselves in the place where we make the decision, where we decide. It's always interesting to me that we always talk about, in our talks about freedom of religion, we always talk about the, the religion of your choice. Sadly, the religion of our choice in most cases is the worship of our own self and to do what we desire and to do what we want to do. And so we already have, as I've mentioned several times, we've plowed the ground and we have the fertile bed already for sin. Sin has not come. The seed has not been sown. But the soil is ready for it. It's rich in lust. It is aerated by our egos. And all we need now is for the seed. And that's what it says. The sin is the seed. And the, and the language here is the language of conception, gestation, and birth. That's the picture. It says when desire, when it has conceived, gives birth, to sin. I've asked this question over and over in the years that it's been my privilege to preach here on 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Um, and I think it's one of the most important questions we ask ourselves. How do you deal with your sin? How have you determined you're going to deal with your sin? Temptation to sin is that crouching at the door 
that the Lord spoke of when he spoke to Cain. Long before Cain had done the right thing. Sin. Now the words for sin here is amartia, which means to miss the mark. And of course that's a good definition of sin. It's missing the mark. But there are other words for sin in the vocabulary of the New Testament. And they all have the little, as I mentioned earlier, the little prefix A in front of them, which means not or no. And one of them is anomia, no law, lawlessness, breaking of the commandments, breaking of the law. Another one is apistia, which means no faith. That which is not of faith is sin, we're told in the New Testament. And so there are many ways that sin moves in on us. Lack of faith, lack of trust in God. The intense desire, the lust of the eye, pride, moving in, invading. That's why the final injunction of this particular reading this morning was do not be deceived because there is a deception in sin. And that's what you see here when he talks about what happens. In verse 14 he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. The word lured means to be drug away and the word enticed means to be ensnared. It's a, it's a picture taken right out of hunting and fishing. It's the hook with the bait on it that lures. We even call them lures, don't we? Lures the fish. And then it's the fish that bites. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if the fish could just see, I see that for what it is, and swim on around and let the lure just stay there and the bait stay there. But the fish doesn't do that because everything about him wants to grab it. And so he gets the hook in the bait and he's snagged and it's the same picture of course with hunting the bait is in the trap and the animal has to have it the smell the enticement the lure moves them in the trap shuts and they're trapped and the consequence of this entrapment is Sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So now we have the picture of a conception, a gestation, a birth, and a full-grown organism. And the full-grown organism is death. Death came by sin. Death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. It is our universal predicament. It goes wide to every single person that's ever lived and it goes deep into our hearts. It is our major problem. What do you do with sin? How do you handle sin? Oh, Ron, before we're done, we need at least one word of gospel. Let's go back to the Beatitude. You know, the Beatitudes give us what we need so often. There's a lot of gospel in Beatitudes. Here's one I like, verse 12. The Beatitude that we spoke of earlier. Blessed is the man... What man? The man, Jesus Christ, who remains steadfast under trial. That's what Jesus did. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He has endured all that is common to us in the world of temptation, but without 
sin. He was faithful to the end, even death. And when he stood the test, he received the crown of life. That's what the resurrection is. It's the bestowal of the King of glory bestowing a crown of life upon His Son, Jesus Christ, who had lived this life sinlessly, had died upon the cross substitutionarily, taking your sin and mine upon Himself and paying that penalty which was death, that fully conceived and fully developed and fully grown death, that is what Paul calls the body of death that takes us to hell. Jesus took that. And he received the crown. Oh, blessed is the man. That's Christ. Just go ahead and put a a mark in your Bible by verse 12. People say, well, we don't find a lot of Christ mentioned in the book of James. Well, you didn't didn't look for him. (laughs) He's there just about in every passage. And here he is. Blessed is the man. I commend to you the man who took your sin. You failed in your temptation. You have death coming. He conquered. He endured. He made it. It was a test. Pass, fail. He passed so that you can pass from death to life. 